author of this holy book, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law, to the praise of thy glory, to the magnification of your great grace. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. In our vibrant and versatile English language, one word can mean many things. This is both fascinating and frustrating. If I were to say to you today, I love grass, what do I mean? <laughs> well, you need a little more context, don't you? If I'm standing in a cannabis store and I say to you, I love grass, uh, that's one thing. But I have said I love grass, not in that way, but in another way. Years ago, they brought in artificial turf in baseball and football stadiums. I played in the infield in baseball, and on artificial turf, the ball came so quickly it was hard to get to it. It was like playing on a gym floor. And I remember saying, I love grass. Now, that's a totally different context. Imagine coming from another country and trying to learn this language. That would make it frustrating. But in the sense of fascinating, it is vibrant and rich and deep. Take the word rest, for instance. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary tells us that there are multiple meanings. For instance, rest could simply mean sleep. Or it could be a pause in the music. We use it as a euphemism for death, R.I.P., rest in peace. It's the conclusion of an argument from a lawyer who says, I rest my case. It means the remainder, the rest of the people. It means freedom from activity. For the worker, it might be a break. For the athlete, it might be halftime, and for the soldier, it might be a ceasefire, but there's freedom and rest. But it's not really freedom from activity, it is freedom from anxiety. The word rest could refer to peace of mind, right? Peace of spirit. I am at rest, at peace. And it can also mean dependence. I cannot rest on that theory. A column rests on its foundation or pedestal. And we could go on. That's just a sampling of this amazing word, rest. What is fascinating about this word is that we read this word throughout the book of Joshua as a major theme, repeated multiple times, at least seven. And in fact, the land of Canaan is often called the land of Fill in the blank. How about rest? It's the land of rest. But what kind of rest is Joshua talking about? Good question. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy that it's just before they got into the Holy Land, Deuteronomy chapter 12, through Moses, the Lord said, You will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety or live safely. 
So the word rest here in this promise of a land called the land of rest is this idea of being settled and this idea of being free from the domination of your enemies. Or we could put it this right way. There's, there's rest from wandering for the people of God. Instead of a nomadic life, they will lead a domestic life. Instead of being in the wilderness, they'll be in their own homeland. Instead of a barren desert, living in a land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan is Israel's rest. It also implies that there'll be rest from warfare. And that's what chapter 12 of Deuteronomy said. There'll be safety from your enemies. So the battle and conflict to take over the land is to some degree going to be absent. And then there also is this sense of rest from worry or anxiety. And I would submit to you that they totally, that they don't get any of these totally. They get a modicum of them, a degree of them, partial wandering is done and Partial warfare is over, and there's still enough worry to go around. What I want to remind you of is that the Old Testament type is going to be clarified by the New Testament truth. What we have in the Old Testament by way of story is for our admonition so that we can, in the New Testament, better understand the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, because I'm going to tell you just from the get-go that real rest is only found in Christ. But when we go to the book of Joshua, this word rest is indeed a fascinating one to us. So we ask the question, why did they have rest? How did they come about? Why is this the land of rest? And the partial answer is because they possessed the land. The command was, take it over. If you go to Joshua chapter 1, so going back to the very first chapter, the promise that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 12 is echoed once again. You will enter into this land of rest. And when you go down to chapter 1 and uh, verse, uh, let's say verse 11, go through the camp, tell the people, Joshua is to tell them, get your supplies ready three days from now. We'll cross the Jordan. We'll go in and take possession of the land the Lord God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest as he has granted you this land. So they're still on the east side And I hope you remember this as you read through the book of Joshua that two and a half tribes get their portion on the east side of the Jordan while the other tribes get their portion on the west side of the Jordan. So Joshua is saying, you have your rest. You have your land. But then he says, you need to keep on fighting with the rest of the tribes, verse 13, until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord, their God, is giving them. So the rest is taking possession of the land. Now we've already learned 
in their attempts to do that, there was success and failure, right? I mean, they were successful with Jericho, the very first city they went against, but they were unsuccessful in their attempts to defeat Ai. And the difference is there was faith on the one hand and sin unconfessed or unbelief on the other hand. So they possessed the land by faith. If the theme of our study is to enter in, then the answer is we enter in by faith. Or the answer to the question, how do we enter in, is by faith. So they moved forward by faith and did some amazing things. We won't be able to go over all of this, but go all the way to chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. In chapter 10, they were fighting the southern uh, cities. In fact, if you want to think of the battle strategy, they went in on the central campaign, which was Jericho and Ai in the middle of the land. Then they turned south, defending the Gibeonites, who now they were in treaty in. That's chapter 9 and 10. And they went down and defeated all the kings in the south. And then when you come uh, to chapter 11, now they're going to be fighting the kings in the north. And there's a confederacy there of the northern armies. We're told in 11.4 that they are huge and they're as numerous as the sand of the sea. But God gives Joshua a promise in verse 6. Don't be afraid of them because this time tomorrow I will hand them over to you. I'll hand all of them over to you. No matter how powerful, no matter how numerous they are. And so they defeated them. By the way, there's a very interesting name that is mentioned in verse 10. It's the city of Hazor. That's north of the Sea of Galilee. So you see how far reaching they were. And you can still go see the ruins of Hazor today. Hazor was burned, we're told in chapter 11, verse 11. And Jericho and Hazor were the only two cities burned. And the archaeologists have found the evidence that this is exactly what happened. Oh, I love it when we get a new discovery in archaeology because it always supports the Bible. If it didn't, you would hear everyone yelling about it. But when it supports the Bible, they're silent. And yet it tells us in verse 18, Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Probably seven years. And you can go into the following chapters and, and there is a discussion of what they were doing. In fact, in verse 21, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country of Hebron. Last week, we read that Caleb did that. The answer is simple. Caleb and Joshua did it together. The only two men who were willing to give a good report to enter into the land of the 12 spies are the two men who walk the land and Caleb gets it as his inheritance. But Joshua was there to help. So that verse 22 says, no Anakites were left in the Israelite territory of Hebron. Only in Gaza, or Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, two of the great Philistine city, cities in the west, did any of these giants, the Anakites, survive. And generations later, there will come a giant 
from the city of Gath named Goliath who will bother the people of Israel, which is going to lead up to a very important point that we want to make today. So when you get down to the end of the chapter, the very last verse, verse 23, it says Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And that will be seen in uh, what, chapters uh, uh, 13 down to I think 20. But notice the last phrase, the land had rest from war. So now they're at rest because of faith. They had to fight and take the land over. They had to possess what God had given them as a gift. Never forget that. God's blessings come to us by grace, but we embrace them by faith. They're not just dropped on our laps. Sometimes they are, but usually God wants us to pursue by faith. And so although we have the possessions, we must possess our possessions. That's actually a biblical phrase that comes out of the little book of Obadiah. It says, one day there will be deliverance on Mount Zion, and there will be holiness. And the tribe or house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. What does that mean? You have more than you're enjoying in Christ. If you have every spiritual blessing that exists in Christ, let me simply ask you this question. Are you enjoying every spiritual blessing? Are you enjoying those blessings to the max? The great story of the man who wandered around poor after the Civil War had but one possession, and he was proud of it. He couldn't read. He had no place to live. But in his pocket, he had this slip of paper with the autograph of Abraham Lincoln on it. He was quick to tell people about it. And one time he showed a friend and he says, do you know what you have here? And he says, I've got the autograph of the president. And he said, no, you have a piece of paper that entitles you to a salary for the rest of your life. Lincoln signed it, but you're to go to the bank this very day and begin possessing your possessions. I want you to know that you and I have more blessings than we can comprehend. And we're so slow by faith to embrace them. Now that's the exciting part of the book of Joshua, but you know that there's another part to it, and that is, why did they not have rest? You said, Pastor, they just had rest. Well, when you go to chapter 13 in verse 1, it says, Joshua was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you're very old, and there are still very large areas of land yet to be taken. And so Joshua is going to divide by lot the land to the different tribes, and you've seen those divisions in the back of your Bible. There's probably a map that shows the divisions in which the tribe 
gained their land, but they still had to go forward and root out the enemy. And when they didn't do that, they lost their rest. They had the land and rest on the one hand, but rest, peace of mind, escaped their grasp. In other words, they did not purge the land. They possessed it, but did not purge it. They were told to take it over, and they were also told what? Drive out the enemies in the land. In Exodus 23, the Lord said, Now, I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and wild animals would take over. Thus it took a long time. Little by little, I will drive them out before you. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. But don't make a covenant with them or with their gods, don't let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because they worship their own gods, which will become a snare to you. Let me put it this way. The Christian life is about embracing by faith our possessions, right? And it is also about purging the land of its enemies. You say, I don't get it. Well, the Apostle Paul takes the Old Testament picture and makes it very vivid in Colossians chapter 3. Paul, in talking about the Christian life, said this, Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, he's talking to Christians. You're a believer? Yes. You still have remnants of corruption within you there are some enemies that are still dwelling in your land you may have been saved by grace and forgiven of all your sin but you're not perfect and in your life there are things that need to be put to death the old king james used the word to mortify Put to death things that belong to your old earthly nature like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways, the life that you used to live, but now you must rid yourself of all such things since you have taken off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Put off, put on. Take in, drive out. That's what the Christian life is all about. So we read in chapter 13, verse 13, Joshua 13, 13, these words. But the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Maacah, so they continued to live among the Israelites until this day. Remember that phrase that's repeated about a dozen times, until this day? While this book was being written, they're still there, even though the tribes all have their land. Or in 1563, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites. The Jebusites were living in the city called Jerusalem. 
wasn't called that just then, but Jerusalem. And they stayed there, couldn't be dislodged. And they lived among the people of Judah. In fact, it was hundreds of years later that David finally captured the city of Jerusalem and made it his capital. Or how about 1610? They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim. But they're requiring them to do hard labor. <laughs> I'm sure that was a compromise. Hey, we can't drive them out, but at least, at least let's make them slaves like the Gibeonites. Yeah, that'll be a great idea. No one else wants to do this work. We'll just keep them around and let them do it. No, no, God said, drive them out. You know, a little bit of lust is okay. I mean, I'll just let it work for me. A little bit of greed motivates me. I think greed is okay. Not a lot, but I've got it under control. It's doing forced labor for me. And No, no, God said, put it to death. Because these things, although small at the moment, will take you over if you don't drive them out. Chapter 17, verse 12. The tribe of Manasseh. They were not able to occupy the towns that were given them because the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. And I, I'm, I think Manasseh must have said, you know, this is really hard work. These guys don't want to go. <laughs> really? What other town just wanted to go? They all fought you, but they're strong. God is stronger. But somewhere they compromised and said, you know what? They're so determined in the region, we'll let them live. But we'll subject the Canaanites to forced labor. And they did not drive them out completely. They had the territory, but they didn't have all the towns. And there were pockets of resistance that they were willing to tolerate. And therein is the principle. They didn't drive them out because they didn't obey the word of God. It's unbelief. God said, take the land over and drive the enemies out. Pretty simple. But I would like, no, God said, don't make any treaty with them. But I would, no, God said, don't let them live. And here's one of the biggest problems among us believers, it's one thing to possess, it's another thing to purge, and we don't do purging very well. I mean, even the thought of that term makes me ill. Have you ever gone through a medical procedure in which the night before they were going to put a scope into your body? You had to purge. And everyone who's done that right now is just feeling a little sick. It's not even a term you want to talk about. However, that's exactly what God said to do to the land. Get them out. This is poison. If you've got a cancer in your body and you go to the doctor and he says, well, we had an operation and it looked pretty good. I saw a little bit in there, but I said, hey, what's a little bit? I took out most of it. You've got your health. For how long? <laughs> Right? I mean, you get that. 
in the spiritual realm, it's the exact same thing. Don't make a treaty with sin. Because it will take you every time. True story in vaudeville of a little boy who used to walk out into the stage and at his whistle, a boa constrictor would come off from the side and wrap itself around the boy's little body and he would whistle a different tune and the boa constrictor would unwrap himself and go off the stage and the place went bonkers. I don't know how the old the boy was, 15, something like that. The boy grew and the act continued and the boa constrictor grew and the act continued until one day he whistled and the snake came on stage and wrapped itself around the boy and got tighter and tighter so the boy couldn't whistle until his lifeless body fell down and the people thought it was an act and everyone applauded until they had to come and drag the boy Kill the snake first and drag the boy off. You see, when sin is small, we think we've got control, but soon it grows up and takes control of us, and it's always, always deadly. There's pleasure in sin. What's the rest of it? For a season. There's a little bit of a high until it takes over. So drive it out. What sad reading is this? We discover that of all the people who received an inheritance, only Caleb was the one who drove out all the enemies, was successful in expelling the enemies from his land. And so we, we need rest, which is salvation in Christ. And we need rest which is dependence upon Christ, and we need rest, which is peace of mind from Christ. That's what we need. It's a very interesting verse that comes out of Psalm 95, and this is the story of the generation before Joshua took the people into the land of Canaan. And the Lord says, for 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said to them, they are a people whose hearts go astray. That's sin. And they have not known my ways. They knew about them, but they did not obey them. So I declared on an oath, in my anger, they will never enter into my rest. Right? And what happened to those people? They all died in the wilderness. Not one of them went into the land except Joshua and Caleb. And now the people in the land get the rest of the land rest in the term of their inheritance, and rest in the sense of remainder. They get all the land, but they don't rest in the land because they allow the enemies of God to continue to live there. So the writer of Hebrews, and we have no idea who this is, I think Dr. Sugden used to say, let's turn to the anonymous book of Paul called Hebrews. It probably was written by anybody but Paul, is my guess, but who knows. It's a wonderful book. It's about some Hebrews who put their faith in Christ and were thinking of going back into Judaism and leaving Christ, and so it's a warning book. 
talks about the greatness of Christ. Now the writer takes the warning from Psalm 95 and brings it right up into his generation. He said in chapter 3, quoting Psalm 95, he quotes it in chapter 4. And now he uses the word rest in several ways. For if Joshua had given them rest, that's Canaan rest, rest in the land, rest from wandering, rest from warfare, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest to come. So there's still a rest to come for the people of God. Verse 9, there's a special day, sometimes called the Sabbath rest, still waiting for the people of God. For anyone who enters into God's rest, which is something different altogether, will rest from their work just as God, after creating the world, rests from his, which is another kind of rest. So you've got creatorial rest and Canaan rest. But God's rest that we can enter into is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we stop working to please God and gain salvation, when we stop working by our religious deeds to earn eternal life, and we rest in the Lord, that's dependence, trust, then we enter into God's rest. Oh, yes, and there is a rest waiting for us, that eternal Sabbath rest, when all of our labors on this work are done. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They enter into their rest. They cease from their works. They enter into their rest, and their deeds follow them. So rest is a combination of acceptance of the divine promise of awareness of the divine presence and agreement with the divine will. Let me say that again. Rest is a combination of acceptance of the divine promise. If I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I rest in that promise. I accept it. It's awareness of the the divine presence. Hebrews 13, 5. The Lord is always with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. So I can boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man will do to me. There's a rest from anxiety simply by being aware that you are in the presence of Christ. And then agreement with the divine command. When we follow God's word, He gives us peace of mind. When we reject his word, we lose that peace of Christ. And we find ourselves working to gain favor with God, which will never work. So get this. Hebrews 4.11, therefore, let us work really hard to rest. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Make every effort to enter that rest, God's rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So what I've got to do is I've got to make sure above all else, I don't work for my salvation, but I give it everything I've got to make sure I'm saved, that I'm trusting Christ, and once in Christ, it is my passion to follow Christ. And when I do, There is wonderful rest. 
Charles Price put it this way, we must learn to rest in the certainty of God's sufficiency. I know that God is sufficient, right? He allows us to be weak sometimes just to show us how strong he really is. It's our unbelief that keeps us from enjoying rest in God. Yes, there will be turmoil in the land, but we must purge out the enemy and rest in the certainty of God's sufficiency. And when we do that, there is rich blessing. It all comes down to this, doesn't it? Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you what? What kind of rest is that? Well, it's rest from trying to earn your salvation. It's rest in the finished work of Christ that makes you perfect and blameless in the sight of God. It's the rest that when you do sin, you can confess your sin and He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and you rest in His finished work once again. It's gospel rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Learn from me or learn about me. Probably means both. Let Him teach you. For I am gentle and humble and hard and you will find rest. So there is a rest when I come to Him. And there is a rest when I follow him. You say, the word has to mean the same thing. We've already shown that the word rest has multiple meanings. Look at the context. And some of you have rest in Christ because you are believers, but you're not taking his yoke upon you necessarily. You're not learning more about Christ. You're not pushing out the sin in your life. Therefore, there's not soul rest. You're filled with anxiety and worrying and care and concern, and so am I when I don't rest in Jesus Christ. People are longing for rest. The soldier in battle, the athlete in the contest, the couple in a bad marriage, turmoil in the family, a person with a grave illness, and the soul that feels its weight of sin like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress with a heavy burden upon his back. And you and I must turn to Christ in rest. I think this was a motto at a doctor's office, but I love it. Invest in rest. Now, haven't you been to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, your life is filled with too much stress. You need to learn how to rest. And so for your physical body, this Release from stress is very positive. But think of it in the spiritual realm. Invest in rest. A great song was written by Jean Pigott years ago. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of who thou art. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, changeless, satisfies my heart. 
brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's faith. Keep me ever trusting, resting. Fill me with your grace. Let's pray. Father, to those of us who have rest in Christ, but not are pursuing the depths of that rest, to those of us who have possessed the land by your grace, a gift given to us, but are not purging out the enemies, I pray, set our course anew this year to follow you like Caleb did with all of our heart and to enter into gospel rest, the rest in Christ that is both justification and communion. In your name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.